Blog Talk Radio. So glad you could join us. Today we'll, we will be looking at part two of the series, Foundation of the Gospel. We are working our way through 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. It's Easter time, and uh, we talked about how last week just the rampant um, objections that come against the resurrection and come against Christianity this time of year. Of course, you can't but turn on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or PBS, uh, even many uh, early morning talk shows. Uh, they are infatuated with this topic, and uh, most of them do not believe that the resurrection was a real event. And so uh, in this passage, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. We're going to dive into a little bit of the evidence for the resurrection. Maybe you've never really heard of evidence for the resurrection. Uh, I, I am able to do a lot of ministry on the college campuses and have been able to make some great uh, friends and acquaintances, and uh, it's funny, this time of year, all my uh, pastor apologist friends love uh, doing the Easter sermon because it gets, gets, a, gets a chance to kind of get in there and look at some of the uh, evidence and some of the um, apologetic arguments for the resurrection. Uh, we'd love to have you join us at Holy Trinity Bible Chapel. We are located at 1168 Thornwell Avenue in Rock Hill, South Carolina, zip code 29732. We're a small church. We're a little church plant. Uh, actually meeting in, in our house right now. Uh, but, um, you know, it's not the, the building that makes the church. Um, I am an ordained uh, minister through the Southern Baptist Convention, though uh, Holy Trinity is not Southern Baptist uh, yet. We may we may go down that route in the future, but uh, we are a Reformed Baptist Church. We hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, and uh, we, we definitely don't shy back from the Reformed faith. So I'd love to have, uh, I'd love to have you guys join us. Uh, we meet at 9.30 in the morning for education hour, and education hour is a time where we uh, really try and dig deep into issues of philosophy and theology and apologetics, and that's that's not to say we don't do that during the sermons, because uh, as you'll see, uh, we do. <laughs> we're, in fact, we're going through the book of Second Peter now, but the education hour offers us a little more time to just get a little more narrow uh, in some of our studies. So we are currently um, coming up to week three, actually week 
yeah, week three of our six-week series in uh, church history, and have just uh, really enjoyed uh, spending some time looking at that. So I uh, would love to have you join us for that. Uh, we also offer a men's and women's Bible, uh, kind of like a Bible study. We, we, we do other various books as well. Uh, the men meet starting June 3rd. Uh, it's Saturday morning. That will be at my house, and uh, we will meet every other Saturday. The women will meet, uh, I believe it's Tuesday, uh, at uh, Friday, I'm sorry, Friday at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then right now we're looking also uh, the women meeting Tuesday nights uh, for, for the, the ladies out there who uh, would like to come at night but can't uh, or would like to come to the study but can only make it at night. So uh, we're going to be going through R.C. Sproul's book, uh, Everyone's a Theologian. And we think that's important because, you know, theology is something that is just really kind of um, not looked upon at a group with a great light uh, these days, uh, even in churches. And so we want to take take our people through um, this book, Everyone's a Theologian. We start with, uh, I believe it starts with uh, the Bible and inspiration and inerrancy, uh, moves to the attributes of God. Uh, who is God, some of those things, and then get into, of course, salvation and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and some of those uh, very important topics. So I would love to have you join us uh, for our men and women's uh, book study. So last last uh, week when we stopped, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and we like to go book by book here at uh, Holy Trinity. And for the resurrection, we just kind of I picked this passage uh, because it really is the foundation of the gospel. That's actually the title of the message. Because if the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection did not happen, that Christianity, uh, as Paul goes on to say in the same chapter, uh, is basically uh, it's dead. Um, do what you want to do: live, eat, drink, be merry. Uh, you know, tomorrow we die. If Christianity is not, if uh, the resurrection is not true, Christianity is not true. We talked a little bit about some of the problems with some of the more liberal denominations that want to affirm a lot of the moralism uh, maybe found in the Bible as love and acceptance, etc., which are good things we should love and, and etc. cetera. Uh, but we cannot divorce that from the, the historical reality uh, of the person of Jesus Christ and the historical event of the resurrection. And so I'm just going to read this passage uh, quickly, and we're going to jump into part two. So starts out, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. And that is First Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11. Now, the way I've got this sketched out is First Corinthians um uh, again, uh, 15 verses 1 through 2 is the foundation of faith, the foundation of faith. If you haven't listened to our last podcast, I would recommend going back, 
listening to that uh, sermon as we're going to be skipping some of the things that I've already covered. Uh, verses 3 through 8, the foundation of the scriptures, foundation of the scriptures, and lastly, verses 9 through 12, the foundation of grace, the foundation of grace. Now, one thing we, we especially saw in verses, uh, starting in verse 3, and I, I started getting into the second point here, uh, the foundation of the scriptures, uh, but we had ran out of time. Um, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Uh, St. Paul has a very high view of scripture. He, he constantly goes to the scriptures. We looked at some of the uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that prophesied uh, that Jesus was coming. Uh, we also looked at from history that Jesus died by crucifixion, and that this is multiple, uh, multiply attested. When historians look at the New Testament, they do not assume that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Now, for the apologetic nerds out there, um, we take a classical approach to apologetics uh, at, at uh, Holy Trinity. And uh, we start with, does truth exist? And once we establish that, we, we go to, does God exist? And after establishing that, are miracles possible, and is the New Testament reliable as the last step? It's, it's pretty much the same approach as uh, Dr. Norm Geisler, who, who, again, I've been trained under at Southern Evangelical Seminary, his method. And, um, you know, if you read the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, uh, Frank Turek and, and Geisler's uh, book and, and Frank's uh, cross-examined ministry. That's kind of the approach we take. So we don't assume from the start that the Bible's the word of God. And so um, uh, there's good reasons to believe that the Bible's the word of God. But when I'm talking to a skeptic, I, I don't um, demand that they assume that before we have the conversation. I think we can demonstrate this. Uh, and so we looked at it from history and historians um, that again, they don't they don't say that the Bible is the Word of God, but they do believe that the the Bible, uh, or at least the New Testament documents, several of them are reliable. Now, all of the Gospels record the death and crucifixion of Christ, as does the Book of Acts and uh, Paul's epistles. Some of the non-Christian sources we looked at was Thallus. Uh, we looked at uh, Mara Barsapian around the seventy. Um, there's a lot of different sources you could get uh, that speak of the historical Jesus. Uh, Barb Ehrman, who is a New Testament uh, scholar and uh, actually uh, an atheist when it comes to the Christian faith, uh, he says he's an agnostic about the others. Uh, last week, I won't get back into all the details, but he, he did uh, go to Moody Bible Institute. He did go to Wheaton uh, I believe it was F.F. Um, Bruce that he studied under and uh, eventually left the faith and uh, now writes books um, pretty much attacking the Christian faith. Uh, he is an academic. He is a professor at uh, Chapel Hill, and he, you can see his debates. He's he's a heavy hitter. I mean, he is, he's no joke. He knows his stuff. Uh, but he wrote a book. Uh, defending the historical Jesus uh, against all of the attacks that have that have kind of come out since the age of the internet uh, and before that as well, but it had been put to bed pretty much that the idea that Jesus didn't exist. And then with the internet coming out and the internet infidels, um, you know, you had this idea that well maybe Jesus didn't exist, etc. And uh, Dr. Ehrman actually wrote a book, uh, The Historical Jesus. Defending, defending that, saying, you know, it's, you know, with pretty good certainty that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Uh, and so let's move on here. Let's look at uh, the Journal of American, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. So in 1986, they published a series of articles uh, examining the practice of torture, of all things. Uh, one of the first articles that they did was titled, actually was the first article, uh, was titled The Death of Jesus Christ by William uh, D. Edwards, who's an MD. Now, this is just from, 
from the journal. The journal starts off by saying, for scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing, and his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and the legs were flogged, either by two soldiers, or sometimes called lictors, or by one who would alternate positions. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. The driven nail would crush or sever the rather large median nerve. Uh, the stimulated nerve would produce the ex uh, excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms. And, and actually that word, uh, the cross, comes out of the Latin uh, excruciating. So the median nerve, you know, sometimes you'll see these pictures of Jesus where he has his, um, you know, he's nailed on the cross uh, in his hands. Um, but uh, a lot of scholarship does not think that is entirely accurate. The problem would be because of the weight of the body would end up ripping right through the hands. Uh, I was reading some uh, information on this. Uh, in 1908, there was a man who uh, wanted to put some of the crucifixion stuff to the test, and he would take corpses of people who had just died and uh, would nail them on the cross and did it uh, that way with the hands. And what, what was shown was um, it really wouldn't be able to substantiate the weight. And so what many scholars believe now is that Jesus would have, uh, not just Jesus, but, you know, there was a lot of people crucified, uh, would more, more than likely would have been crucified, uh, been nailed in the wrists. Uh, so between, in the wrist you have, um, right before the wrist, you have the radius and the ulna bone. And so you'd have that large spike going through the wrist, and that would be where the median nerve is. Uh, and so it'd be very hard to, to pretty much even move after that. Uh, and so that would be able to help support the body weight so that they would not fall off of, off of the cross. Now, um, of course, it also go through the feet. And back to the journal, it says, since speech occurs during uh, exhalation, those short, terse utterances must have been particularly difficult and painful. The journal concludes that Jesus died at the crucifixion. We read in John chapter 19, verses 33 through 34, that but when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, speaking of the Roman guards, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came the blood and water. A very interesting fact on that, uh, Josh McDowell's book, uh, evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, it might be the new evidence that demands a verdict. Um, but he talks about how around the heart you have what's called the pericardium, which is uh, basically a sac of water-like fluid that helps keep the heart, I guess, in place. And so many have concluded, because where it talks about the, the, the blood and the water flowing out, that when the, the guards speared him, and again, they're making sure he's dead, uh, that they would have ruptured that pericardium. Uh, that Jesus could have survived on the cross. We'll look at some of the alternate theories that have been put forth, but it's very, very unlikely. Uh, kind of as we continue to go on, just, just let me make the distinction uh, between what is possible and what is probable. Right? Some people will say, well, it's possible that he didn't die on the cross. Well, there's a lot of things that are possible, right? It's, it's possible that, uh, you know, I could jump from here to the moon, you know, it's a, there's no law of logic being broke with that. There's physiological problems, obviously. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's possible that, uh, you know, as you're listening to this podcast, it's just, uh, you know, a dream and you think, you know, you're hearing me, but really there's a scientist that is just manipulating uh, your brain to make you think you're having these experiences. Sure, those, those are things that are possible, uh, but they're not things that are probable. So keep that distinction. Um, when people bring that, that up about being possible, um, you just want to want to challenge. Um, maybe it's possible, but is it probable? Verses 35 through 36 go on to say his legs were not broken so as to fulfill the scriptures that not a bone would be broken. 
Now Bart Ehrman and his he uh, he has a blog. He wrote one entitled "Jesus Crucifixion as King of the Jews." He says this, and again, remember Ehrman's Ehrman's an agnostic. He says there are few things that we can say with virtual certainty about Jesus. For example, that uh, he was a Jewish preacher from rural Galilee who made a fateful trip to Jerusalem and was crucified by the Roman guards. He's saying that, that we can know uh, with, with a good amount of certainty. So let's look at verses three and four. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So there's very good reasons to think he died. Again, we'll look at some of these uh, competing theories that say he didn't. Uh, but even the American you know, medical journal um, really delved into that and, and was just saying it's, it's a pretty, pretty good reason to think he's dead. Now, verse 4 talks about that he's buried, right, that he, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Well, why is the burial important, and why is the burial included in the gospel itself? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is an excellent Reformed catechism that we go through actually weekly in our service, we set a little time to go through that, says this. Why, question, why was he also buried? Answer to prove that he was really dead. You know, it's uh, it's really not that big of a profound answer, but it was to prove that Jesus was really dead. He really died on the cross. This is important because the skeptics will sometimes counter by saying, well, he didn't really die. And if he didn't really die, well, then you can't have a resurrection. Now, Matthew 27, 57 through 60 says, and when evening was come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also himself a disciple of Jesus. This man went up to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded it to be given up, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. Now, Horace uh, says, uh, who was a historian, this was very rare as a Latin poet. Uh, he was a Latin poet and said, uh, of those crucified by the Roman authorities. Um, they would normally leave the body on the cross until it decayed. Uh, he spoke about crucified slaves feeding the crows on the cross. Now, many will point to uh, Isaiah 53, 9 uh, as a prophetic verse speaking of the burial of Christ. Um, Isaiah 53, 9 says, um, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then uh, you, you can read in, in uh, Mark fifteen forty three that Joseph of Arimathea was uh, an honorable Jew of, uh, influential Jew of honorable estate. So you have the death, you have the the burial of Christ, and then let's look at verses 3 through 7 as we work our way through this text. Verse 5, it says, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And to all the apostles, and then Paul goes on to say in verse 8, last of all, uh, he also appeared to me. Now, we're going to get into um, what's called the five minimal facts. There's actually more minimal facts that could be added to this, uh, but we're just going to go with five. Uh, This is um, a scholar by the name of Dr. Gary Habermas, and uh, kind of a quick, quick little story here. It was, um, you know, I, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, my father was a pastor, uh, but I had a lot of questions. You know, I did not understand how science and the Bible came together. I, I did not uh, see that there was really any evidence that Jesus actually lived and that he, he rose from the dead. 
And, um, you know, eventually I, I pretty much walked away, you know, from, from the faith. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know my exact mental states. I don't know if I was a Christian or not. I, um, I don't, you know, believe you can lose your salvation. I believe that if you are a Christian, God will persevere you uh, till the end. But it was watching a debate right around this time of year between Gary Habermas and an atheist named Anthony Flew on the resurrection. And, I, you know, I had assumed that, well, you know, Christians take everything by this blind faith because that's how it had always been presented. You know, science, logic, these things were really um, tools of the enemy, and uh, they just wanted to make you doubt. And, you know, the more incredible it is to believe, then, you know, it takes more faith. And so, you know, whatever is the, the most illogical or irrational, well, then you're more of a virtuous Christian if you believe that, because it takes more faith to believe that. Thankfully, I've, you know, I've learned far better since then, and I understand, you know, the biblical view of faith is to have a trust or a confidence. It's, it's certainly not a blind leap in the dark, but I remember watching this debate thinking, you know, the Christian is going to get crushed because we don't have these tools on our side. We don't have logic and we don't have science and history in that. And as I watched this debate, I was just blown away uh, when Dr. Habermas just demolished uh, Anthony Flew, who was a very, very sweet old man. Uh, he was a very well-known atheist. He was a philosopher, wrote a lot of articles. Um, in fact, before he died, actually became a deist. And uh, he may have become a theist. I, I don't know. You know, you don't know uh, a person's last moments. Um, but he actually did abandon atheism. But Dr. Habermas, has, he's the one that kind of uh, really formulated this this process, the, the minimal facts argument. He studied every article on the resurrection written in German, French, and English from the 70s through the present. Uh, and we'll look at these five that, that many, many New Testament scholars grant. And to be clear, when I'm saying New Testament scholars, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, Bible-believing Baptists. Uh, in, the f- in the field of New Testament scholarship, there is a lot of atheists, and there's a lot of agnostics, and there's a lot of other, you know, religious beliefs. Uh, so when we say that these guys grant this, this is not to say, you know, it's a bunch of Christians in a Baptist church who grant these. That, you know, may not be too impressive. Uh, but someone like a Bart Ehrman or, or some of the others that would grant this uh, is pretty impressive. So what are these minimal facts? Well, the first is that Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Again, this is important, very important, <clears throat> because, again, in order to have a resurrection, you first have to have a death. Second, that Jesus' tomb was empty. He was buried in the tomb, and uh, when they came to, to get the tomb, he, to, to get the body, uh, the tomb was empty. Third, that the disciples believed that they saw the risen Jesus. Right? You know, let's get this again. The disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus. Now, let me be clear. They're not saying that they believed Jesus rose from the dead. What they do concede, though, is the disciples believed that they saw him. So, you know, we'll look at, at some competing theories. We'll say things like, well, they, they were hallucinating. They were in a grief hallucination state. And so it's important. Um, these, these three are all very important. Uh, number four, Paul, who was a skeptic and persecutor of the Christian church, was also converted. So Paul's a skeptic. He's not a believer, right? We'll see why that's that's devastating for the hallucination theory. And then five, very similar like that, uh, the skeptic James, Jesus' brother, was also converted. Uh, and so we'll see these minimal facts are, are very powerful. Beauty of the Christian faith is that these these claims are events that happened in history, and we can test it. You know, if you make a spiritual claim that, um, you know, let's say an angel came and visited me last night or something, hard to test, 
right? There's nobody there. It's just me. You know, you may think, well, he's, you know, he was dreaming or something, right? But if I'm making a claim that something happened historically, well, that's, that's not something that's just subjective, right? That's something that can be tested. Now, as one who grew up in Utah, lived there for, for 23 years, uh, the Mormon religion is, is by far the most prominent. Uh, when one opens up the Bible, for example, you go to the back, you'll find maps and you'll find places. Uh, when we study archaeology, we, we can find this evidence that corroborates what the Bible says. Now, you know, archaeology can't prove that the Bible is true. But what archaeology can do is it comes alongside the Bible and says, look, these particular events happened at this time and these particular people really did live and these particular people really did exist now with the book of mormon you don't have that you have these people groups that we don't have evidence for these supposed wars uh that nobody knows where exactly it happened and and they have the names but i mean they can't show you where it's at so they don't have the archaeological evidence there's not a real way to test it um I believe it, you know, with the Book of Mormon that the tablets were taken back up to heaven. So it's not like, you know, you can you can test them or, or anything. Uh, the claims of Holy Scripture are far different, though. Uh, and that goes for many of the world religions, uh, because a lot of them you can't. You can't test them. Um, you know, I host a podcast called Theology Matters with the Palouse, and we had uh, Professor Ken Samples on, who just wrote his book, God Among Sages. And uh, he was in a recent debate with a Hindu, a Hindu scholar. And uh, they were talking about one of the Hindu gods and, you know, kind of what's the evidence for it. And when pressed, uh, the gentleman said, you know, basically it didn't matter if this particular god lived or not. If he was a historical person, uh, if, it, if those events happened in history, it just it didn't change his faith one, one bit. <laughs> And, you know, for Christians, that, that's, uh, as, you know, you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus doesn't exist, the resurrection um, doesn't happen, then Christianity is false. And so that is one of the, the beautiful things I do love about Christianity is we can, we can make these, we can test these claims. We can see if what they're saying um, is, is true or not. Uh, it was we need to we need to examine the evidence we need to see what some of maybe the rival theories are and again the power of the minimal facts because uh, we can look at them to kind of walk through some of these theories now one of the things that we have to first do is look at a little bit at the reliability of the new testament uh, because if the documents themselves aren't reliable, and that's, you know, one of the things that are going to get attacked, uh, then there's not a lot of reason to, to trust, uh, you know, the, the record of the resurrection. You know, <clears throat> most people, especially in America, they believe God exists. You know, atheism is on the rise. There's a jump in that. Um, but most people, and when I say most, I'm saying high 80s. Uh, in America, at least the last polls show, and, you know, atheism's on the rise, but it's still by far a minority. Uh, most people will believe in some type of God, some type of higher power, some type of higher being. Now, when you when you start getting a little more narrow and you start saying Jesus and getting more into that, uh, then they back off quite a bit. They will believe and maybe grant that some type of God exists, whether whether pantheism, you know, the idea that God is all and uh, all is God, or maybe a deism, or, um, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or whatever. Uh, but uh, rarely are they going to affirm that Jesus, uh, you know, is God. And so they will attack the reliability of the Bible. Now, with the New Testament, there are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts uh, which make the New Testament hands down <clears throat> the best attested work in ancient history. Homer of Iliad comes in second with a little over a thousand. Now this is important because historians will look at these other books and they will grant that they are probably historically reliable. 
Um, and so if you have the New Testament that far surpasses these other books, like by thousands of manuscripts, and the other books are said to be historically reliable, uh, well then, you know, what does that say about the New Testament? Secondly, we have early attestation. Homer, uh, Homer's manuscripts are about a thousand years after the original autographs. So you have the autographs and then you have the manuscripts. The autographs are the original the originals and manuscripts come later. Well, with the New Testament, uh, and, and Homer would be probably the second best, to my knowledge, that comes in with that, with a, a, you know, a thousand-year separation. With the New Testament, you have these, these manuscripts from the autographs far earlier. For example, the John Ryland fragment, uh, P52, which contains some of John uh, chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, and 37 through 38, it's dated uh, between 117 and 139 A.D. So you're looking, you know, 29 to, you know, uh, 39 years or so. Uh, you have P46, which has the book of Hebrews, First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, several sections of, um, you know, Thessalonians, this is the Chester Beatty papyrus. This is about a 150-year span. See, so there, there's far more um, manuscripts for the New Testament and far more earlier attestation than any other works. And so a lot of times what you see with the skeptic is um, they will accept the other historical writings um, as being, you know, historically reliable, etc., um, and yet they don't have, they're not even close to where the New Testament is. Now, a lot of times that is because they uh, have a presupposition against miracles, and what I mean by that is their starting point is miracles can't happen. Miracles can't happen, miracles don't happen. Well, if you start with the idea that miracles are impossible, then it's no surprise you come to the conclusion that therefore that the uh, you know the New Testament is is false, uh, but we can't start with that presupposition. We have to look: is there evidence for God's existence? And um, you know we'll come to come to our education hours, etc. Uh, you'll see there's very good arguments and, and um, evidence to believe God exists. Uh, if God can create the universe out of nothing. And, uh, you know, there's several arguments. I'd just say pick up, uh, you know, Geisler's philosophy of religion or uh, debating theism edited by, uh, I believe it's Moreland. Um, some of the philosophy of religion textbooks, you know, you can read guys like St. Augustine and St. Anselm and St. Thomas Aquinas and, and just some of these brilliant uh, thinkers of the past who have given good arguments that I do not think have been defeated. This show God exists. So if God exists, miracles are not only possible, but they're actual because the greatest miracle has already happened, which is the creation. God can create the universe out of nothing. Then resurrections certainly, um, certainly are something we have to look at. We can't just dismiss them a, a priori, so to speak. And naturalists do this. If you're a naturalist and you're saying that the only thing that exists is the universe, and there's nothing beyond it. Everything is just mere chemicals and, you know, the laws of physics, etc. Then, uh, obviously, you're not going to believe the resurrection. But you have to give an argument for that. We have to see why. Why is that? Why should we believe that naturalism is true? Let's look at some of the alternative theories for the resurrection that have been proposed. One is called the swoon theory. This is the idea that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. He just kind of swooned there, uh, that he passed out on the cross, and that when he died, that uh, they took him off the cross, and they put him in the tomb, uh, and uh, he just revived and was able to uh, escape the tomb. Now, just remember, with the five minimal facts, right? So let's, let's go through some of the problems. First, this theory does not comport to what we know about the um, trauma of the scourging itself and the crucifixion. You know, if you just look just at the scourging, uh, I mean, a lot of people died just from the scourging, but then also having the trauma of being uh, crucified. Uh, again, the Journal of American Medical Association concludes, 
quote, accordingly, uh, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. There's a lot of uh, different documentaries and shows that have been put out showing exactly what the scourging would do as far as internal uh, bleeding and and, uh, trauma there as as well as the, the crucifixion. Now, second, so that's one problem. Uh, Again, make this distinction between possible and probable. Secondly, the Gospels themselves record that Jesus was pierced through the heart, right through through the pericardium. Roman soldiers knew what they were doing. They were trained executioners. So it's remember they didn't even break the legs. Uh, Remember when you're on the cross and you're trying to breathe. uh, That's how that's how people died. Uh, in crucifixion was uh, if they didn't die before the blood loss and the trauma, but it was um, also, uh, if you made it that long, asphyxiation. You have to flex your legs. You have to be able to breathe in order to get the, you know, the lungs filled with air. Uh, and so they would break the legs that the, the people on the cross weren't, could not flex and therefore they would uh, uh, asphyxiate. Third, the physical toll that was taken from the scourging and the crucifixion, he could not have rolled the stone away. It gets into one of these things, guys, where uh, it, it's a bigger miracle to say he doesn't die on the cross, uh, but that he rolls the stone away, which between one and two tons, uh, moving the stone and then fighting the guards. Now, uh, this is um, a quote that comes from a um, particular article, can't find the source right now, but it says, quote, rolling the stone was set inside a groove in front of the entrance and secured from falling over by a stone wall that stood in front of the tomb opening. Often the groove was not level, but sloped. To close the tomb, the stone would be rolled down the groove at a decline and come to rest in front of the entrance. To open up the tomb, the stone would have had to be rolled up the incline. So you're talking about somebody that has been scourged, more than likely has internal injuries. Second, crucified as to where the median nerves in both wrists are going to be gone. Uh, The feet, you also have the same issues there because he's crucified there. If you could walk, that would be amazing. Uh, But now you're talking about pushing a two-ton stone uphill. (laughs) It just gets to this, you know, uh, kind of unbelievable point. Fourth, after removing the stone, Jesus would have had to beat all the Roman guards, uh, again, trained guards, that if he gets away, they're going to lose their life. Fifth, uh, this doesn't ex- this wouldn't explain with the minimal facts we looked at the conversion of uh, Paul and James, right? Paul was a skeptic. James was a skeptic. If Jesus appears to them after being scourged and after crucified, etc., they're not going to be convinced he was resurrected. They're going to see the body, and they're, they're going to probably say, get this man to a doctor or something. They're not going to say, you know, oh, I want a body just like his. Uh, and so the swoon theory has really uh, fallen out of favor just because of the numerous problems uh, that it has. Possible, well, maybe, but it's it's definitely not probable. Uh, again, that would be on a naturalistic view. Second objection, well, the disciples stole the body. This is known as sometimes the fraud or the conspiracy theory. This theory suggests that Jesus' followers stole the body away, unbeknownst to anyone, and lied about the resurrection appearances, pulling off what would be the greatest hoax in history. See, there's only so many things you can come up with as to what happened to the body. So this is one of the other more popular ones. Well, there's a lot of problems with this as well. First, it doesn't explain why the disciples would invent a story that the woman, that the women would be the primary witnesses of the resurrection. Now, in in that particular culture, uh, women were not esteemed uh, as high as men at all. In fact, they were very degraded and uh, were not trusted. And in fact, if you if you get into kind of New Testament apologetics, uh, this is one of the one of the things they look at is called the kind of embarrassing testimony. That if you were going to make a story 
and if you were going to try and convince people, uh, you wouldn't put in things that are going to embarrass you or things that are going to make you look bad. Uh, and historians would say when that happens, when you do get these embarrassing testimonies in there, there's a good chance that, that, is pro- that they're probably telling the truth. Let's look at Matthew 27, 62 through 66, which says um, they took uh, major precautions to ensure the body would not be stolen. The next day, it, said, it goes on to say, quote, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said <clears throat> that while he was still alive, after three days I will arise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, we're not sure exactly how many guards were at the tomb, but a watch consisted of four soldiers, which was changed every four hours. If the prisoners escaped, the soldiers would die. We see Matthew 28:11 through 15. The soldiers told the chief priest what had happened, right, when the angel appeared, uh, and they believe they were they're like dead men. Uh, when the angel rolled the stone away, and they paid the soldiers off and said they would keep them out of trouble. Told them just to say that the disciples had stolen the body, right? So the scriptures already kind of explained this was this was one of the things that that was going to be said. Now, this theory again has a lot of problems because it doesn't account for the transformation of the disciples, who before the resurrection they ran away and left Christ, and and Peter even denied them. But now they're bold. After seeing the resurrected Christ, they're willing to be in prison. They're willing to be uh, beaten. They're willing to face death. And in fact, if, as we look at the apostles, uh, we'll be looking at some some church tradition here. Um, but we know three of them for sure were, were martyred. And I need to bring this point out. People would will point to 9/11 and say, "Well, look, you have uh, Muslims who died for what they believed in." Right, but it's different, and it's different because the disciples, if Jesus did not really rise from the dead, and if the disciples stole the dead body, they would know he didn't rise from the dead, they would know it. And so, why would they willingly die for what they know is a lie? You know, as soon as you start to get crucified or uh, or beaten or tortured, you're gonna re- you're gonna recant. You're not going to die for what you know is a lie. And some will say, well, it's, it's because of the power. Well, what power? What power did they have? They were all killed. You can't have power when you're dead. St. Peter, he died. Uh, according to Eusebius, he was crucified upside down in 64 AD. James, um, uh, brother of Jesus, died around 44 to 45 AD. Uh, according to Acts 12, 12, uh, 12.2, it was a death by sword. St. Paul, around 67, beheaded by Nero. Uh, you have Andrew, um, who tells us that he was crucified six years after Peter. Thomas was thrust with pine spears uh, and tormented uh, with red-hot plates. Philip, in 54, uh, hostile Jews had him tortured and killed. Uh, you know, and you can go down. You can go down the list. Uh, James the Lesser, sixty-three, beaten to death. Simon the Zealot, seventy-four, uh, martyred by a governor in Syria. Judas Thaddeus, uh, in seventy-two, beaten to death with sticks. Uh, and so you have almost all of the apostles, according to church tradition, uh, died martyrs. Now, Sean McDowell has just come out with a new book. It's a huge tomb, actually. Uh, really looking at this in depth, but just showing that the apostles died or were harshly treated for their beliefs. So there's no real good reason to think that they stole the body. People don't die for what they know is a lie. 
again, Muslims may die for their beliefs, uh, you know, but the disciples, if they stole the body, they would know firsthand that Jesus did not die. They wouldn't have just been deceived. They would have had to actively tell a lie. And so uh, that is also a, a theory that has just fallen out of uh, popularity because of the problems. Uh, third objection, that the disciples experienced hallucinations. This theory suggests that those who saw the risen Christ were just having grief hallucinations. Um, they'll give examples, you know, if you go to a nursing home or something and, you know, an older uh, couple, maybe the, the, the husband died and, and the wife thinks that she sees him or something like that and say, well, it's, you know, it's just a grief, grief hallucination. But there's numerous problems with this theory. First, it doesn't explain the empty tomb. Right, you have what's called the Jerusalem factor. If Jesus's body was still in the tomb, all they would have to do is take the body, parade it up and down the streets, demonstrating he didn't rise from the dead. Second, uh, the appearances of Jesus was to friends, but also to foes. Right, Paul and James, especially Paul, he wasn't a believer. He wasn't sympathetic. He's not going to be having grief hallucinations. He was a persecutor of the church. You can read in, in Acts, uh, you know, chapter seven when he's there when when Stephen is is uh, put to death. You also have James, who's a skeptic. Uh, Thomas, John chapter twenty, verse, uh, you know, twenty five, I believe it is through twenty eight, where he's saying, you know, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hands in the the, the nail prints and the wrists. And Jesus challenges him, touch me, see. Uh, you know, as uh, so me. And next thing you know, it's Thomas is saying, my Lord and my God. Third, hallucinations like dreams are individual. They're not shared by, by groups, right? Uh, you don't have, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, you and your wife go to bed and then you wake up in the in the morning and say, oh, man, wasn't that a great dream we had? <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's uh, hallucinations are something that are individual and not something that people have together. But we, we could go far more in detail uh, and we will do so in our, in our further education hours as we look at the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, but I just wanted to point out, there are very good reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians must give the scriptures up. Let's look at verses nine through 12. The foundation of grace. Foundation of grace. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Verse 9, St. Paul acknowledges his sinful past. And as we read the passage, we see he's still blown away that God and his grace has saved him. Paul was a violent, violent persecutor of the church and was present, again, as I said earlier, when Stephen was stoned. You know, if anything else during this Easter, this Easter time, it should give us hope. It should definitely give us hope because we sometimes tend to think that there are these people that are so bad, they're so far away from God that there is no hope for them. You know, my grandfather, he was an atheist. <clears throat> me and him were best friends. Um, you know, he, he had a big part in raising me. Uh, he was an atheist his whole life. He was in World War II, came from England, you know, just that kind of skepticism. Well, towards the end of his life, when God saved me, when I was around 23 during that debate, I, I had a real interest. God just put this desire uh, for origins. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the evidence for intelligent design? Is evolution true? You know, and I studied for around six months, just everything I could, and uh, was able to have several discussions with my grandfather. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to say that um, – you know, one conversation, he he accepted Christ, and we prayed together on the phone. He repented of his sin. He trusted Christ at 86 years old, and he, he died uh, a few months later after that. But it should show us that no one is too far 
away. And I love love St. Paul's attitude uh, in that he has a glimpse into the evil of his own heart and knows salvation is all of grace. You know, I don't know anybody else's heart, you know, and I really don't even know my own heart that well. Uh, but uh, the glimpse of it that I've seen, I know it's evil. I know it's wicked. I know that I deserve hell, and I know that I deserve punishment for that. You know, verse, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Is this our attitude as we approach the resurrection, recognizing that we are born of the Spirit, not because we're smarter or have more to offer than someone else, but surely by God's grace, we are what we are. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, his grace towards you is not in vain. Not in vain. Aren't you thankful for that? St. Paul recognizes there's nothing he could do to earn his salvation. And if given what he deserves, he would be cut off from God. He doesn't view the resurrection as cheap grace. He realizes that the resurrection is everything and that we are doomed without it. Far from a view of uh, sometimes called antinomianism or without the law, as far as, you know, we, we just uh, get your fire insurance and then you live how you want to live. He says that he works harder than any of them. God's grace did not make Paul lazy, but rather motivated him, motivated him to live his life fully to the glory of God. Friends, I pray, I pray, I pray that will be you this Easter. In conclusion of this passage, we see in verse one and two, the foundation of the faith. We have seen that apart from the resurrection, Christianity fails. The resurrection is the foundation of the faith. We dare not give the resurrection up. We see in verses three through eight, the foundation of the scriptures. If no resurrection, the scriptures are meaningless. The prophets are liars. And I stress this because you have so much in liberal Christianity that is wanting to get away from the miracles and wanting to get away from these important acts like the resurrection, like a literal Adam and Eve, like a literal flood. You can't do that. Jesus says in John 3.12, if I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe when I tell you heavenly things? See, Jesus, being that Jesus raised from the dead, Jesus is God, and God cannot err. Therefore, Jesus cannot err. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve. Jesus believed in a literal Noah. Jesus believed in a Jonah, the, the Jonah and the whale, or the great fish. You know, So we, uh, we can't tamper with that. Verses 9 through 12, we see the foundation of grace. Because of the resurrection, we have a foundation of grace which washes away all of our sin and gives us eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Aren't you thankful for that? This Easter, be reminded, we serve a risen Savior. Didn't just, didn't just happen in a, in, in a fairy tale land or pie in the sky. It's a historical event that really happened. And we owe all to him. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate On earth is not his equal
strength confide Our striving would be losing We're not the right man on our side The man of God's own choosing Dost ask who that may be Christ Jesus it is He Lord Sabaoth His name From age to age the same And He must win the battle 